Welcome to the Everyone's a Critic Movie Review Podcast. I'm your host today, Sean Kernan. Uh, Bob is off today. He is in, somewhere in Montana, I believe. On purpose? Uh, <laughs> visiting Ted Kaczynski. Um, he likes to go to the grave once a year to say hello. In his hoodie and sunglasses and mustache. <laughs> Yeah, you should probably introduce who's talking. Every, every family has a tradition. <laughs> uh, Jeff is here. Hey, Jeff. What's up? I'm a minion. <laughs> from the 90s? What did so that, that happen? Was that? Amy's here, too. Hiya. But she didn't watch any movies, so no. don't pay attention to her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, I, I'm only here just to look up information for them. <laughs> Well, you can clap when I make a good point. I mean, that'd be that'd be helpful. It's funny if I don't clap at all. <laughs> you, you, your, your hands won't get tired. <laughs> We're ready. Uh, like uh, on Twitter, it's at Critics Pod, and of course on Patreon, search Everyone's a Critic. Uh, Bob does that way better than I do. He's got a whole spiel that I just can't memorize. <laughs> Listen to last week's episode. There's that yeah, too. Just the yeah. beginning, and then come back to this one. <laughs> Bob, splice it in. You're you're going to be doing this right. Um, <laughs> So, before we before we get started here, I just want to say hello again. Uh, we were we were going to record not too long ago about another movie that we didn't record about, because um, I I was actually trying to I was actually considering writing about a movie that uh, uh, is a legendary piece of uh, horror. <laughs> horror? Uh, yeah, I thought it was horrible. There was a movie that turned 50 a couple weeks ago, and we were going to do a special episode on it, and uh, you were going to be here, and you even read a book for it. I read the book Ordeal by Linda Lovelace, who was the star of Deep Throat, which is also my drag name. Um, <laughs> uh, basically, it talked about her, you know, how after she left the porn industry she became a very vocal anti-porn advocate mm-hmm. and talked about how you know she was raped and pretty much every time everything she did was her being raped um now it there was some controversy over the book because some people said well no it didn't quite happen that way some people said no i i can back up everything she said Though the way it's described in the book, her relationship with Chuck Trainer, there was a lot of things that it would—it was literally only her word against him, mm-hmm. and he was though a notorious piece of shit. Uh, so you tend to believe most of what she says sure. in the book, um, and that kind of—you know—I full disclosure, somebody gave that book to my mom. That's not a book my mom would have ever bought. <laughs> And that was the first thing, first time I ever knew anything about oral sex, and I was like ten. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, now you know, now on the internet, I know about it before I left kindergarten. <laughs> but oh, the conservative is coming out. <laughs> well, time. Yes, I am the church lady. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's not a really well written book, and but it you can read it really quickly. It's called Ordeal. Um, it's been around mm-hmm. since the late 70s so um honestly i think deep throat kind of underlines some of the points she makes i mean honestly just oh yeah the way because i i did watch this thinking well there must be something to this right there's sure. nothing to it there's absolutely nothing to that movie no. it, it hardly exists 
Uh, it's this ludicrous male fantasy that uh, this woman could grow <laughs> clitoris in her throat, and thus why she enjoys. Uh, Wait, that, that's doing not that. real. <laughs> Amy, is, does that really happen? I don't know anything She's not about allowed women. To comment. <laughs> um, it's no, I mean it's just. Is that real? <laughs> Uh, what woman doesn't enjoy, doesn't just absolutely enjoy it all the time? I don't understand. Um, no, it's really a it's a really there's just nothing to it. It's just all gratuitous nonsense, and I I don't know. I I wasn't even really that excited by it, honestly. No, I I saw it years and years ago in college. Just a bunch of us, you know, were like, "Oh, what's this all about?" And one of my one of my friends had a film theory class, and they showed it in film theory, which didn't go over very well at the University of Denver, let me tell you. Um, and um, I, since I'm not a straight person, I what? was not excited about it whatsoever. Um, all the men in it are completely disgusting specimens. Uh, there was nothing at all. Was this 70s? Yeah, it was 1972. Yeah. Everybody was so oily back then, too. <laughs> yeah. And, like, if you what? were 15, you looked like you were 50. What Why did they about? love brown so much? That's what I want to know. Like, what is that? Brown, orange, and yellow. It's like those, <laughs> those shit Always fall yeah, in right. the 70s. Because yeah. <laughs> you start at a, at a, at a point, because this thing isn't very long, thankfully, but at a certain point, you do start pondering the walls. Like, just, like, why would you choose that? Uh, why would you choose those drapes? Why would you choose that couch? You know, because there's nothing else. It, it just it's diminishing returns at a certain point. As somebody who's very into like 50s and 60s architecture and design, the 70s <laughs> ate all that up and shit it out. Basically, that's why everything's brown. Yep. No wonder that the 80s embraced neon so much. We just want fucking color. Give yeah. me a fucking color that looks neon. alive, please. Neon and brass. Like, everything was brass. <laughs> and now brass is coming back, and I hate it. I no. hate it. We have, we've already been through that Billy Squire music video. We're not doing it. We're not doing it again. <laughs> Torture. Uh, well, speaking of an icon of the 70s, essentially, he became one again, I guess, in the 70s. Of course, I did see... Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. Uh, I'm a huge Baz Luhrmann fan. I think he's amazing as a director for the most part. Uh, I love Moulin Rouge. Uh, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. Yep. Uh, this movie, I don't understand what drew him to this. So this is not necessarily a biopic. It kind of is. It kind of isn't. It does have elements of Elvis's life as a child and his family, but it also has like some fantastical elements. A lot of it is just, or at least they feel fantastical because the editing is so all over the place. It's just pure chaos at times watching this movie. There's a, there's something being tossed at the screen all the time, and it's so this it's constant. a Baz Luhrmann movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, Moulin Rouge had had romance and a love story that I fell in love with that that I think kept my attention very well. And same with killer soundtrack, exactly, and oh Romeo God. and Juliet the same. I, I was I was drawn in by the by the performance of Leonardo DiCaprio there. Austin Butler doesn't quite have that kind of presence, uh, and Tom Hanks is buried under all this makeup and a terrible accent, which he's good at doing, I'm sure, but it just it doesn't it, it just seems almost comical at times, and I. I just didn't. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't hate it because it's Baz Luhrmann. I don't think he can make a truly terrible movie, but it is chaotic, and the editing especially is just so chaotic that things are flying past so quickly. They really underplay. If you can do this, they underplay the drug use a little bit, which is kind of weird. Uh, 
<laughs> they also like a, they they totally leave off the they don't have Austin Butler really get into the fat Elvis era, which I hate saying it that way, but like oh, on, the out of shape cool. Elvis years, you know. Right. They instead they by that time they kind of fade out of him and they go to this uh, you know they go to a newspaper headline that announces Elvis's death and then uh, he dies. By the way, I didn't know he. <sighs> He's yeah. not dead. No. I saw Elvis the other day at the Piggly Wiggly. For the last 15 years of my life, Sean said that I was the reason why Elvis died. <laughs> because I was born in 1977. <laughs> so, uh, real quick, just something that I was reading about this, it, it, and I think I agree with this statement, is that the fun of a Lorman film is that you never get historical accuracy. You get a delirious kind of, they say, Baz mania. And I think that that is true with any... Um, like, if you look at, like, well, look at how he did Romeo and Juliet. You know, we're in Miami Beach. You know, we're not really set in Verona. That kind of thing. He just kind of takes the, the historical parts of stories. Like, but this is a real, a true story. But it's more about his storytelling than it is anything. It's how, how Baz Luhrmann wants to see. Yeah. I, I just never got a sense of what it is that drew Baz Luhrmann to this, though. Like, I can understand what drew him to Moulin Rouge. I can understand what draws him to Shakespeare. I can't see what brought him to this. Because I just... The Elvis aesthetic is not... Uh, it's kind of... It's a lot more mainstream than than typically what Baz Luhrmann seems to be into. Not that right. Shakespeare isn't kind of mainstream and even the Moulin Rouge you know went mainstream in many ways because it had a lot of it was a jukebox musical had a lot of popular uh, well-known songs in it but I just don't see Elvis matching the kind of aesthetic that Baz goes for and so I think he kind of goes into overdrive trying to to edit this thing to death to to bring it energy and color and I just don't think it quite works well you're saying like if you say something like if something is edited to death I would hate watching that like <laughs> There's those the, moments the first hour of this movie, yeah, they, just, as they're rushing through Elvis's childhood, and uh, everything is told from the perspective of Colonel Colonel Tom Parker. So you're having to hear that that oh, Tom Hanks, Tom <laughs> like that. Oh no, thing? no, he ta- he's he's Hungarian in real Shut life. Shut up, he's not. He is. He's Hungarian. I did. <laughs> Colonel not Tom know Parker that. is Hungarian. Yeah. <laughs> well, with the name Colonel Tom Parker, I just <laughs> obviously he was no. Hungarian. His real his real name is something very. Uh, like I can't even pronounce. It, I don't it, think. That's, yeah, and we're not going to try. So no. That's okay. So that's the accent that he's playing. Though is this the Eastern European accent that he's trying to Americanize? Uh, which Colonel Parker did that. He had a deeply Europe, Eastern European accent that he tried to Americanize and tried to claim that he was from the South. Kind of off subject. But, was it really a Colonel? No. Well, then why take that? <laughs> Stolen it's valor. It's, <laughs> It sounds official. You respect a colonel okay, when you hear I'm, Colonel I'm Tom. Amy for the rest of the show. <laughs> Get in line, Amy. Get in line. There's only one queen here today, <laughs> right? I only have so much Pinot Grigio, so please don't make me spit it out again. No, did you know that Elvis wasn't allowed to leave the country because Colonel Tom Parker couldn't travel outside the United States because he didn't have a passport? Was that in the movie, or do you just know that? That's in the movie. Wow, I did not know that. It doesn't really seem to have a good handle on who they thought Elvis was. Like it's still it's still everything about Elvis that you think you know about Elvis. And there's no real new insight. And I'm not sure if there's ever going to be any kind of new insight in Elvis. I mean, Priscilla's told her story, Colonel Tom's told his story, hit the Memphis Mafia have told their story about him. They've painted a pretty complete picture of who Elvis is. I don't know if there's any new insight to be gleaned if you're going to... And he's not necessarily sticking directly to Elvis' story, but certainly he's giving us the Elvis that we expect 
uh, and the Elvis that we kind of think we know, even though nobody really knows the real Elvis. Other right, than, except you know, for his family. Right. But, like, what, I hate the casting. I hate the casting, because I'm looking at this picture right now of Austin Butler, and I don't know if, if it's just me, but, like, he could play John Travolta when he was younger. <laughs> He's no Michael St. Gerard. He's no Michael St. Gerard. And, oh, my God, he looked just like him. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, you're exactly right. So, yeah, I... And then and now he's he's apparently affected Elvis's uh, voice pattern. He's like, well, it's just it's just something that I'm used to now. Well, that's great. <laughs> I mean, he got it. the voice down. I mean, it definitely sounds like Elvis for sure. I don't <laughs> I don't know if he actually did sing the singing in the movie. I don't know. Who, I'm not I'm looking at that right I, now. I'm actually not aware. I have no idea. I I. I hate Elvis. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, I have Is no... Like a, did, did Elvis touch you? What happened? <laughs> only Where? in my heart. <laughs> I just, the only redeeming quality about Elvis, as far as I'm concerned, is the fact that apparently his favorite movie was Black Christmas. No, it wasn't. What? Yep. Okay, that would be for you the only redeeming quality. <laughs> yes. That's why you hate everybody else. Unless yeah. you like that movie. Right. Um, I just, I... Uh, like, I didn't grow up with any affinity for him. You know, none of my family liked him. Particular, you know, everybody in our family was the Beatles. Yeah. And the Bee Gees. Yes. You know, that kind of stuff. But, no, you know, nobody really cared about Elvis. There was no, like, hero worship or anything like that. Right. I was really young when he died. Um, I, I have... You just don't care. I just, yeah, I just... <laughs> it's like, I'm completely apathetic about him. Right. And... I think I've, I've always been the same way. I just, I never understood the appeal. Yeah. To be honest. So, you know, I, when I ran into you at the theater the other night, Sean, and you were like, I think I might go see Elvis. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go back to work. <laughs> <laughs> I just, uh, it, there's something about Elvis the, that we kind of did grow up with in the eighties is that whole, it, where he became, he became this sort of, uh, like a, a sign of ignorance. Like people would make fun of people who like Elvis. Uh, in a way, you know, because he was on the Inquirer cover every day, oh and he was, you know, he's abducted by aliens and all this stuff. And it, That's why I love the Inquirer. But then you also had all this, like, this Elvis memorabilia out there that definitely, like, as much as I, I understand people want to make money, it all it all feels very crass, mm-hmm. and and that affects how you see Elvis. Now, I I like. I like what they did in the movie about Elvis in terms of what he did back in the 50s because it was revolutionary. I mean, yes, yeah, he was absolutely. stealing he was stealing the music of black people, but he was also platforming many other black artists. I mean, B.B. King was a close friend. Uh, you know, the, he did do some of that. It's still valid to criticize him for stealing black music. There's no doubt about that. But he did also, like, wake up the country in a way that nobody else had done before you know he's his pants yeah i mean stepping on stage (laughs) and doing what he did (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) he hated that too uh yeah he didn't want that that's just that that's what happened that's what they did what is that on mute no okay that would suck oh god elvis elvis let me be (laughs) keep that pelvis far from me that's the only redeeming Elvis thing be about it. my life. That would be it. It's just the that time though he was he was pretty revolutionary in that time. He was banned from television. He was almost arrested just for you know playing a song. So yeah, yeah and and he forced people. He forced open a door that we've not been able to close since then until until yesterday. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> this movie effectively does that. Yeah. <laughs> 
What a nice cap, really, on, on everything right there. It's great because now we're back in the 50s, so it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's appropriate timing. I, the, the, that is the element of Elvis, though, that, that, that kind of stood out to me, is that the evoking of female sexuality and the, and the reaction of people who would like, oh, no, 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 women aren't allowed to feel that way in public. Stop, stop, Elvis, stop. <laughs> women are getting excited. Women, because, you know, back then there were so many closeted gays, too. It was probably like, oh, oh, they can find an awakening. Amy, gay people didn't exist until the 70s. <laughs> That's not true. There is one. I like, know your people, Josh. It's a little bit. I don't know. They have this uh, Southern judge character who's like, uh, he's a member of the Klan and he wants to no. keep the schools not integrated. And he finds out about Elvis, you know, bringing black and white people together. And then he's doing all the hip stuff. And they cut to a shot of Elvis on TV doing his thing. And that guy's son, he was like 11 or 12 years old, is watching it. And the coding is so. <laughs> Oh, no. So much uh, that you can sense that this child just had an awakening. I mean, maybe if I was alive in the 50s, <laughs> maybe I would have had that awakening. Well, I mean, but you, you can't deny that he, I mean, he, he, was, he was eye candy. He definitely was eye candy. And people love to look at him as much as they love to listen to him. I, I think I liked his movies better than I liked his music. I, I was just, I was thinking about Clambake the other day, and I'm like, God, I, I really had, I, I had good memories of watching that with my mom. We loved the music and all that kind of stuff, but... Well, nobody will listen to me because, uh, you know, it's Elvis, and King Creole is an actually really great movie, because mm-hmm. it's directed by Michael Curtiz, who, granted, is uh, guilty of many war crimes, honestly, oh, <laughs> from his movies back Why in the so early silent. So he right. killed several people. I'm not going to say how many he killed. He killed a few people, but he also directed Casablanca, so he wins. Yeah. Is he the Zodiac Killer? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that'd be interesting. <laughs> We're not talking about Ted Cruz. Sorry, yeah. I, no. <laughs> not sure where I was headed. Yeah, Michael Curtiz killed a bunch yeah, of people? Yeah, Michael Curtiz killed a bunch of people. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> You've suddenly yeah. piqued my interest. Why didn't they make a movie of that? Like, I would have been interested in that. <laughs> but, like, King Creole is is a legit great movie. Yeah. And I think people would really be surprised how great Elvis is in that movie. And I think he's a great actor. I really do. It, and it's not just Elvis playing Elvis. Like, he, there are times where you're like, you can see the real emotion in him. According to this movie, if you follow, if you f- believe what you see in this movie, he was going to get the Chris Christopherson part in A Star Is Born. No, he was going to get that, but he felt that Barbara and Colonel Tom couldn't be in the same room together. Why? Because <laughs> Barbara would hate him. Oh, oh, well, yeah. I guess I get that. I guess quite rightly. Uh, if they, I don't know if they met before, and he, that's the impression that they got, or I don't know. Colonel Tom kind of tried to. He, as much as he liked taking Elvis to Hollywood, and you know, he, he also would like try and just control everything that he did, and make sure that he had the control over everything that he did. And it was, it, it was, you know, who tells the story better? And I guess in a similar way is is the Beach Boys movie with John Cusack yeah. and Paul Dano. Yeah, that movie t- takes a similar tact with somebody who's a guru and over, you know, taking over somebody's life and robbing them of who they are. That movie does a much better job than this one does of telling a story like that. Because this one seems just too much focused on the glitz and glamour. And also, it just seems like, at times, because Colonel Tom is narrating this, 
that we don't really have a good sense of whether or not Baz Luhrmann is taking a stand on Colonel Tom. He does kind of at the end, like this guy's really a, a terrible person, a criminal who robbed Elvis and you know kept all his uh, money for himself and that kind of stuff. But throughout, you know, you're you're talking about you you have him played by the nicest guy in the world that everybody let, that everybody loves. Yeah. It's not like Tom Hanks is going to be able to make that turn for us to start hating him <laughs> at any point. Right. We're always going to give a Tom Hanks character, even if he's playing a monster like Colonel Parker. We want to give Tom Hanks the benefit of the doubt, and so that casting kind of doesn't work in a way. Yeah, you think like I was thinking more along the lines of like Michael Shannon or somebody like that. You know, that would that you already kind of have that. He's always had that kind of, I'm not a good guy kind of act. <laughs> Great actor, but you Great know what actor. I mean? Yeah. Somebody like that. And so how was the makeup? It was good, yeah. It's a, it's Believable? seamless, seamless good. makeup. Yeah. Tom, Tom Hanks looked like a big fat guy. I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like that. I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> I'm not recommending it. Um, if you want to watch Baz Luhrmann direct, watch Romeo and Juliet, watch... Moulin Rouge, I think those are two genuinely great movies. And uh, this one, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm very mixed on. I don't hate it. I just, I'm very, very mixed. Yeah, that makes sense. And I was just real quick here. I was just, you brought up King Creole, and I was reading a little bit about it here. And they were saying that probably was his best role. So, did they, it says here, did that Memphis show really end in a riot after one, uh, only one song? Would, did that happen in the movie? Um, I think I remember something like that in the movie. Yeah, I mean, because yeah, he got arrested like as soon as he started doing, you know, his help, his hips moving around. They did, they did go on stage to arrest him. I guess. Ah, uh, okay. Well, they're saying that that didn't really happen. Well, like a lot of things in this movie probably didn't happen. But... Just, just some fact checking. <laughs> so don't go to this movie thinking this is the the, the definitive. Cause it's not. <laughs> You mean it's not an absolutely one hundred percent true biography, right? That that only that person would know how it went, but we're all gonna, yeah, exactly. I Toulouse Lautrec also didn't star in a uh, Indian musical at the Moulin Rouge, so that you know, Whoa. <laughs> that you know of. What the fuck? God, you Just go ahead and ruin it for everybody. But yeah, you should go watch Moulin Rouge right now. Anyone should. It's great. Yeah. Finish listening to us first, and then go watch Moulin Rouge. <laughs> God, Amy. Sorry. Pick I'm up bad. the phone. The black phone. Oh, <laughs> I think I might step outside for this one, you guys, because I don't care. Is what the Ethan fuck, Hawk? Jesus? <laughs> Is this Ethan Hawke? Yes. yes. Okay, now I love him. So, did he write this? Tell no. me about this. No, no, this is written and directed by, well, not written by, directed by Scott Derrickson, okay. who is a tremendous horror movie director. He drew the good Doctor Strange movie. Uh, he, <laughs> he's directed. Really he's just. He's a terrific. He's a terrific director. <laughs> is the point, and uh, he's got a really great story here. So it's set in Colorado in in the late seventies. There's a character called the Grabber that is going around and nabbing kids. He uses these black balloons to kind of wrap them up and toss them in the back of his van, take them home, and put them in a basement, torture them for a while, and then commit a murder. Great. Pause. So he, he puts them in a van and takes them home, tortures them, and murders them. Uh, people are looking for him. They've got you know signs and flyers up everywhere trying to find these kids. One after another keeps going missing. The main two characters are a brother and sister who uh, have, uh, I guess, 
one of them at least has a sort of a supernatural power where in her dreams she can kind of see things that have happened uh kind of psychically connect to victims in this case and figure out maybe where they are or what's happened to them she sounds like a dream warrior. It sounds like Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> She's really great, though. She's a wonderful character, and I really loved her. And the the the, the little brother, the older brother, uh, he gets kidnapped, uh, and she tries to force herself to use this power to try and find him. Meanwhile, he's also kind of having this weird supernatural experience where, trapped in Ethan Hawke's basement, he starts getting these phone calls from this disconnected phone on the wall, and it's all of the past victims calling him and giving him tips on how to get out of here. Uh, a lot of that is just, it's really well done. And this movie has one of the best jump scares that I've seen in a movie in some time. This, and it's just Derrickson using his camera so incredibly well. He, he's got this really good close-up on the kid, on the phone. He just turns his camera a little bit, and honestly, I leapt. It was terrific. <laughs> what a great piece of direction. Yeah, I mean, we need more horror movies like this. Um you know, we don't need more insidious movies or more conjuring movies. More Saw. Uh, yeah, I mean... I love Saw. I those, love Insidious. Give me more. They're, they're fine. They're fine. But we need original stuff like this, too. Um, it's based on a short story by Joe Hill, who's only, um, who is Stephen King's son. It's only a 20-page story. 2004? I don't know. Came out in 2004. Um, but... You know, it's only a 20-page story, so, you know, Scott Derrickson and uh, the writer, whose name is escaping me now, I just listened to him on a podcast the other day, um, they were able to expand on that. That's where, you know, you get the bigger part for the sister, who is amazing and one of the best characters I've seen in a movie in the last five years. She's great. Madeline McGraw. Yes. She, um, you know, she has some of the best lines. Uh, There's a scene that's very disturbing with her in it that... The uh, yeah, the has tried to get uh, Scott Derrickson to take out, and he said no because that's you know that's one of the only ways you know this character is because that happened. Um, no spoilers, but she's the adult in the house. Um, you know, Finney, her older brother, just a couple years older, is like a little brother to her. She's the one who seems to have her shit together the most. He's you know. A, always being bullied um you know can't stand up to his father when things are going bad um the father's a drunk so she's the one who's kind of like in charge for lack of a better term um the performances in this were um, just so good uh the kind of comic turn that um james ransone who has worked with derrickson before in uh sinister and sinister 2 We'll just say Sinister, Sinister 2. No, don't. <laughs> don't. Please don't. Um, you know, the fact... He's in it, and not... He doesn't have a huge part, but it's kind of pivotal, and kind of... That's part of the mystery, is his character. And that's what we need, is we need stuff that, like, kind of throws you off a little bit, that isn't, oh, here comes Vera Farmiga, and, you know... A, <laughs> There's a doll, <laughs> and the only thing that's oh, the only thing that's going to get them through this is their faith in Jesus yeah. and, in, and in each other. And is that on Pure Flix? Can I watch that? Insidious may as well be a Pure Flix <laughs> thing anymore, or uh, The Conjuring. Yes, thank right, you. The Conjuring. Um, but it's it's just it's an original idea. It's kind of out there a little bit, and you know Ethan Hawke is really frightening with his the different masks that he wears. 
Um, he, he really he plays that menace super well. And, it, you know, there's a scene where um, Finn is going to almost escape. And because this is not your typical, you know, oh, is he going to get away or is there going to be another victim? You know, you don't know. You don't know any of this. So it's, there are truly tense moments in this. Incredibly well-structured, very smartly put together. Uh, they're, they're, they, they add this element to Hawk's character. He has this thing that he likes to do called Naughty Boy, and that provides you with a, just a scene that is just so spectacular. Two of them, actually. Uh, and two or three of them, really, when you think about it. And it's just so, it's so perfect, the way he plays it. He's got... He's, he's crazy, clearly, but he's also got this almost childlike quality at times and then this very menacing quality he goes back and forth brilliantly the way he uses his voice the way he uses his manner he lets himself be a little bit uh, out of shape just a little bit creepy and weird uh, just a perfect combination like like a, almost a method <laughs> killer performance yeah. like well, he's just he seems to embody this character so perfectly and one of the things about Ethan Hawke movie whenever he's in a movie he's almost got to be in every single scene and it's one thing that kind of always bugged me about him is he's, you know, I'm I'm going to be in every scene. I'm the star of this movie, and he's a star on the poster. But this, you know, the guy who plays Finney, whose name escapes me, is so good that you don't you're not looking for Ethan Hawke in this movie. Mm-hmm. You're you're completely invested in both of the kids. Absolutely. And I, I got to give a shout out too to Jeremy Davies, who plays their dad, who really uh, is a creep and and uh, you know, does horrible things. But there's a it, it there's a moment near the end that is just kind of kind of beautiful. Uh, we don't know if it'll go anywhere, but I mean it's it's good. It works. Uh, and there's a, there's a kind of a hopefulness that that's there that is really unexpected. It's also you know not a movie that's playing around with its ending, which I really love that too. Yeah, yeah. There, uh, I you know I. No, ordinarily with a horror movie, you're kind of waiting around for the jump scare at the end, and you, this is more kind of esoteric, and you kind of... It's very satisfying. That yeah. was the very first thing I thought after it was over. I'm like, that was very satisfying. And I'm... I watch pretty much exclusively horror movies and SVU. Um, so, for me to think a horror movie is satisfying, you should definitely see this in the theater. I completely agree. Like, uh, like I said, this, everything about this just works. The, a lot of it is structure. A lot of it is just direction. It's not a movie that has a lot of gore, but the gore that it has in terms of at least just practical makeup effects, fucking great. Just yeah. brilliantly yeah. used. Yeah. Also, you should see it in the theater because then you get to see the trailer for Don't Worry Darling with Francis, Florence Pugh and... I, God, I, don't, I, can't, I can't even Harry say his name. Harry Styles! Yeah, Harry Styles. <laughs> looks absolutely gorgeous. Yes. It's, I, I can't wait for this movie. And I sat there the whole time. I was watching the trailer and I'm like, wait, what movie am I here to see? Cause that's how, that's how much it took me. Like just took me. So hmm. I'm getting a little tired of the trailer. I've seen it way too many times. I've, this but... is the first time I've ever seen it. So of course I don't, <laughs> I don't go to the movies professionally. <laughs> right. I've seen the trailer a lot. I'm okay. I could I could go without seeing it for a little while, so I can get hyped about that movie again because it, it does look very good. Olivia Wilde's a terrific director. She is. She's awesome. Also, there was the trailer for Smile. If you're a horror fan, there's some really like fucking 
fucked up horror movies coming out this year. And I, that trailer for that one looked pretty good. Uh, I'm concerned about the September release at any time because September is tends to be, you know, unfriended or whatever, you know that kind of trash. Why? Why is that? Is it just how they? It's just how the years get structured. It's summer's over. We're going to people. Are, uh, kids are going back then. to school. Yeah. But keep in mind, September is spooky season, <laughs> so that you'll see a lot of horror movies in September. That's true. And I mean, I was just I I still surprised that the star of that movie is Kevin Bacon and Kira Sedgwick's apparently 45-year-old daughter. <laughs> Wait a second, I gotta look this up. <laughs> but yeah, if you're a horror fan like me, there's there's a new uh, Winona Ryder movie coming out. Um, I think it was originally called The Cow, but now it's called something about Overnight or something... And that looks really good too. That's hmm. like I saw the trailer for that the other day. I'm like, oh, I wish this was playing on the big screen because, yeah, it's it looks really tense and fucked up. Well, she's so, amazing. I, I just I, never see more of her. When it comes to horror movies, I'm I've kind of settled on like if it's a twenty four, I know it's going to be good, or if it's Scott Derrickson, I know it's going to be good. <laughs> I'm an easy lay for horror movies. <laughs> That's a, Amy. You'll 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 appreciate this. Yeah. Uh, I saw ran into Sean in the theater, and right. we were, and I went over, and I'm like, I'm hope we were talking about the black phone. I said, I hope it's as good as I've been hearing. He's like, oh, I've not heard so many good things. And I'm like, Yeah, I'm talking to horror people. Right. <laughs> You're not one of those people, Sean. <laughs> I, I love that you can appreciate it, but you do definitely have your own set of of what you like. What is kind of more your Ilk, I suppose. Well, it has to be directed by Ari Aster. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Who Ari I was Aster wearing is. my Midsummer shirt. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Well, okay. So the Winona Ryder movie is Gone in the Night. Gone in the Night. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, and I would like to see that as well. Even though I don't like those kinds of movies, I love her, and I will watch her in anything. So. Yes. I'm so how many seasons of Stranger Things have you watched? All of them, except for the, this last... <laughs> There's only two more episodes next month. I know, and I didn't start it because I... I was hoping she said no for the joke. I wasn't ready. Oh, yeah, yeah, you wanted that. <laughs> I, if this were two weeks ago, yes, you would have been correct. But it's taken me everything I had to, like, get myself up. Because when once we do that... Again, it's 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 scary to me. It's a terrifying element, but it's a very beautifully done show. And I'm glad that it's getting its due. And I'm glad Kate Bush is getting her due, honestly, because she fucking deserves it. You know, what is so gratifying is when you are a teenager in the Quad Cities <laughs> and you can't get them to play Kate Bush on the radio. Right. You, you only know Kate Bush from MTV, so you go out and you buy the 45 running up that hill in 1985. And then you're at work. And the hits station, not not Mix ninety six, but the hits station yeah, is playing "Running Up That Hill" at work, and I'm just like, my day has come. I love that, <laughs> but they also ruin it because then they followed up with some Ariana Grande bullshit. <laughs> Stop it! She doesn't know how to enunciate. I'm sure she's a very nice person. I just don't care for yeah. her music. That's all. Um, all right, so you saw 
Yeah. A movie that I... It, was it a documentary? I'm mm-hmm. just looking it up, and I can't... I'm not really reading much about it. Rondo and Bob? Rondo and Bob is a new documentary about uh, uh, Robert. You'll know. You know who he is. He did the design. He did all the clothes. The the design for fire, for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, uh, yeah. Rondo Hatton. I should have known this. That's not the same guy I'm talking. No, I'm talking about I, Robert. I, I just happen to see it because they, they always reference him on Mystery Science Theater. <laughs> anyway, go ahead, go, ahead, go ahead. Joe Bob Briggs, Rondo Hatton, Peter Law. <laughs> I, I can't remember his last name, uh, but. Burns. He, Burns, thank yeah, you. Robert, Robert Burns. Burns did the. He created like all of the the bones and stuff for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. All of the skin, all the skin chairs and whatnot created by him. Shout out to my friend John Dugan who played Grandpa in the original. Nice. So this is a story about how uh, Bob Burns became obsessed with this little known horror guy uh, named Rondo Hatton. He wasn't particularly well known. He was brought to Hollywood after a career in journalism. He, and uh, he had what it was called, it's the same thing that happened to Andre the Giant. He has that uh, giantism. Oh, uh, yeah. And, uh, but it only affected his head. So his head, got, his face got really Wait, large. Was this maniac cop? <laughs> you know, the thing about Rondo Hatton is he... he uh, <laughs> For looking the way that he did, he did a shit ton of no, movies. Yeah, yeah that, and I, that's what I'm looking is he play, right Did he play Maniac Cop? I'm I, almost positive he did. And actually, that might be um, what I'm thinking of right now. I don't think so. I thought he was dead much earlier than that. Because, well, he died young. Yeah. Maniac Cop was like with Bruce Campbell mm-hmm. in the 80s. Well, I don't think he lived in the 80s. Oh. Because oh. he, he, and, he and Bob Burns never met. Oh. So, oh, okay. Yeah, Rondo Hatton was was well dead by then. Okay, I can't remember. I, I mean, I it, I have no capacity today to remember names. So. <laughs> Rondo Hatton was brought to Hollywood in the immediate aftermath of the Universal Monsters. Like he was going to oh, be the okay. next generation of the Universal Monsters. Oh yeah, the Birdman. That's that's the exercise theater movie I'm thinking of is the Birdman. And so that he he got a lot of work, but not a lot of work, and it kind of went away after a while and. But some re- somehow Bob Burns saw that and became obsessed with Rondo Hatton and developed this sort of, uh, you know, de- tried to develop his life story and give him a legacy that he deserved, which is a great story, I think. But this movie is bizarre. The choices that they make in this documentary are so weird. So they have actors that act out Bob Clark's life, or Bob Burns' life, and Rondo's life, and they've got this guy in this terrible mask that he can barely speak through, uh, trying to be Rondo Hatton, uh, and you've got this other guy who looks nothing like Bob Burns playing Bob Burns. Oh no! And it seems like the these act these are not trained actors to be the, to say this is in the kindest way I can. They're not trained actors, and it's it's, it's such that uh, this so this becomes very bizarre. We actually lose the story of why Bob Burns gets obsessed with Rondo Hatton. Like, why did he get there? Because they spend so much time telling. Bob Burns' stories and the very like Bob Burns. Did you know he was at uh, he was at Texas University when the shooting happened from the bell tower? Oh wow! He and Toby Hooper were both there. Oh yeah, yeah, I've heard wow. of that story. And I'm sure that had some sort of warping effect on them. But if you if you watch this documentary, it's just something that sort of happened to them. <laughs> they were just happened to both be there, and that's where they kind of met. Uh, <laughs> fun, I mean, not fun fact, but his one of his first roles, Rondo Hatton. I'm talking about was Uncle Tom's Cabin in 1927, and he played a slave. Hmm. He had, I mean, just, again, 1927 to 1946, for all the movies that I just showed you, and I did, I just flashed 
I didn't flash the guys, but I flashed them my computer to see what how many movies, and it's a ton mm -hmm. for what he did, and that's a pretty short period of time. And you you would think we would learn that in this documentary, but we <laughs> don't. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. We do learn the you know, Rondo Hatton was uh, beloved by his wife, like he had a very attractive wife, uh, and was a very it was incredibly charming. Everybody in his life really really loved him. Right. Um, he died relatively young, considering. Uh, uh, he always looked very old based on it because of his uh, condition. I really would have liked to have seen more about why Bob Burns gets obsessed with this guy. That's what I was looking for. That's the story that they fail to tell in this documentary, even though that seems to be what's promised. A dumb which they're just doing, like, Bob Burns did this thing, like, where late in life he was just kind of hiding out in this small Texas town, just away from the world. And he used to go to this place and, like, perform on stage and he did these weird like puppet shows like he had the like, he had him and like a group of things on a stick that danced with him like he did this it was weird but they had somebody recreate this they had the guy playing him in the documentary recreate this and then over the credits they play bob burns doing that act and they're like why didn't you just show us that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, and i get the rondo they probably just couldn't afford to license the clips because this is a pretty low budget doc right so they probably just couldn't license clip from universal to show you know movies of yeah his. that's probably it it's a it's but that just kind of makes it uh it just doesn't work it's i've never seen i've rarely i've rarely reviewed a bad documentary I, I don't think there are very many bad documentaries in the world and that's a bummer too because again you're talking about something like rondo hatton who as, again, as I'm looking back on this, I remember, I keep harping back on Mr. Science Theater, but I'm going to because they did so many of these kinds of movies back then, that I remember always looking up, if they referenced an actor, I wanted to look him up and figure it out. And by the way, it was um, acromegaly that he had. Mm -hmm. um, and he was poisoned. He got exposed to, to poison, which I, again, totally forgot about, but I'm looking at this like, wow. But in my thought <laughs> I'll come back to it. <laughs> it's the wine. It's the wine, Bob. Please delete this. Um, but I, like that's if they're going to make a movie and it's going to be Bob Burns and if you're you know gonna, if Rondo's going to be in there, I would like to know more about both of them as as people. And I guess you're saying you didn't get that in no. this film. No, the the main thing, the main takeaway about who Bob Burns is, just to kind of bring back a topic we were talking about earlier, in his office he had a deep throat pinball game. <laughs> That's something mm. I spend money on. I mean, not the worst tie-in when you think about it. Are the paddles just little dicks? And... <laughs> I didn't get that good a look at it. <laughs> <laughs> oh god well yeah that's I, I, that was probably part I'm of it yes my job the, back after this. the pinball is just a clitoris uh, <laughs> a free-floating clitoris that can go in your throat or your vagina <laughs> at work in your car it's a medical miracle <laughs> all right yeah, now move on from... <laughs> let's talk about a french classic oh. <laughs> So this is a discreet charm. The discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, 1972, another film that's turning 50 this year, directed by Luis Buñuel, and it tells the story of a group of uh, upper class people in in Paris who are trying to get together to have a meal. And every time they try to get together to have a meal, something happens. Like the first time they get together, the 
four four of our six or core six characters come to the house, and the other two are supposed to be hosting, but they've showed up a night early, so the party isn't happening. <laughs> so they they leave and they go to a restaurant down the street. So they bring their host with them. The the female half of their host the other host isn't there uh there so there's five of them they go down the road to this to this uh, restaurant and the restaurant is locked up they think it's closed they're gonna leave then somebody comes out and lets them in and says no no we're open it's fine really so they go in they sit down they're having they're gonna have their meal uh then they hear a woman crying behind a curtain in in the restaurant so the women get up to go look and when they look there's a man's body laying across a table, and it's the owner of the restaurant. He's died that very day, <laughs> and they've closed the restaurant to mourn him, but they want to make a little money, so they let these people in. So they get up and leave. They don't stay, because there's a dead body. Yeah. Uh, so this keeps happening. These things just keep happening that prevent them from having a meal, and it all becomes very... so hungry. It all becomes this uh, sort of a dream sequence, eventually, where you know we don't ever see them eat. We don't ever get to see that happen, but we see them trying to get together to have a meal together that just keeps getting interrupted. And it's, uh, it's becomes this thing where it becomes like they, they start having these weird dreams. The men have them specifically about, you know, trying to get together and then something happening where it turns violent (laughs) to, you know, the, the just various different ways. It's such a brilliant movie and it's got so much deeper meaning to it, but mostly what it is, is just Luis Buñal playing with the form of a film. He's playing with the way that you watch movies, the way you go into a movie expecting a linear story to being told. Uh, and the way you expect, uh, you know, everything to make sense. He's, he's just messing with you. Uh, the entire time, and it's just kind of brilliant. I guess I'm wondering, it. like, how can America ruin the film? Because, I mean, they could easily take it, and, like, I'm already thinking of casting right now. How could we do this that would make it so America and very white? Like, I think we could do that here. They're trying to go to Cracker Barrel. <laughs> they can never get to Cracker Barrel. <laughs> some redneck is dead in the back room at Cracker Barrel. I'm going to alienate half the audience. I know. <laughs> Hey, they have great hash browns, but still, regardless... Truly, nobody cares about this. Nobody's reading my review of this <laughs> that I wrote. I wrote a beautiful thousand-page, you know, appreciation. A thousand page? thousand word. Oh, my God. Appreciation. Like, well, no wonder a no thousand-word appreciation of this. <laughs> and like, I'm not reading a thousand-page review of a movie. It's just really it's good. Just and Sean's manuscript of this small French film. It's brilliant, small French film. Is that what it is? 50-year-old classic. 50-year-old classic. Who said it was a classic? French? Yes. For you. And, and just about anybody who loves film, See, yes. See, now I, I just sound so <laughs> uneducated. And you'd be right. You'd be right. Amy, he said film, not I, movies. <laughs> film. Amy, uh, what you might know from Buñuel is the, the you've seen it, whether you've wanted to see it or not, and that is that there's a the Unchan Andalu, which is the uh, scene where a woman has her eyeball slipped by a razor blade. <laughs> yeah. He yeah, did him and Salvador Dali directed that together. Dali was fucking crazy, <laughs> and I, I, Dali is like I've, I've had like five bottles of Nyquil, and that's just it's it's, it's just a Dali drink. I love, I love Dali, but fucking crazy. <laughs> Yeah, so I, but I love this movie. I wish more people would see this movie. And read his review. Uh, it's just an incredible film. They just redid it in 4K. It's uh, just 
it's incredible and it's a, a way to learn about movies especially yeah. because of the way that you could read this movie in a very you know that's something about comparing the bourgeoisie to the proletariat and hunger and all that you could read into that you could read religious themes into it if you wanted to but the the bottom line is that mostly this is just Buñuel messing with the form of film and messing with your expectations and how you watch movies I think it's, I love the idea of it I love like I, I would watch that like there's all this other stuff that's happening that's probably like in other movies would be more interesting like there's a drug deal going around like these guys the guys in the movie are literally just in the midst of a drug deal and it's just the most casual conversation it's not even in the movie it's not even part of the, the main plot it's just it's they mention it they're casually making a drug deal and then it's gone uh, and they move on uh, it, they, there's another one where the military shows up to do like uh, maneuvers outside of the house and that, then the military was in, they showed up a night early so now they're here in the house to spend the night because they've been invited and so that's interrupted the meal but then somebody attacks outside and so they've got to go outside and you know begin their war game and, and just... see and in America they would call it minor inconveniences <laughs> You know, they, I just, I, I, why do I always have to ruin every good movie by making it American? Mm. No, in America, it'd be, they'd be swatted. <laughs> I feel like a Bob's Burgers episode. It'd be fantastic. So, yeah. Jeff, what's the best French horror movie? <laughs> um, well, I, up until the very end of it, I thought that High Tension was going to be one of the best ones, but, but it turns it? out... No, it ends up absolute garbage. Ends up being just a homophobic piece of shit mm. yeah. at the end, basically. Um, the whole movie, I was like, "Oh, this is really good. This is really good." And then when the end, I was like, "What the fuck, Jesus?" <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, um, the best French horror movie is probably something I probably haven't seen. Mm-hmm. Because I flunked French. I didn't actually <laughs> flunk it. I just didn't care. I was just there to change my French name every 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. I was, to bring it all back and tie it all together, I was Elvis for a while in French class. Oh, weird. Yeah, Madame Smith really fucking hated me. Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody, to this day, some of my classmates call me Elvis, Elvis. So. I was Giselle. And it was because it was the last name that was on the list. I was the last person called. Um, Everybody else got like a really cool name, and I got. You're not Galen. <laughs> Galen Maxwell. Galen. Oh, sorry, wrong podcast. <laughs> Welcome to the true crime portion. Yes. Oh, my hand's not tired yet. Here we go. All right, all right. I love this, and and, and I think I would actually watch this. Uh, I just hate subtitles because I'm tired. <laughs> But I would watch it on a good day. Oh, you you, you know, always get a copy of Joe Dirt. Oh, dude. No, I, I've watched so many movies. <laughs> Is that movies. the American remake? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, like, I've watched things in Tamil, and, and like, like you know, I'm, I'm just, that's my, like, I can read fast, but French, I can't do it. I don't know why. I think it's because I took four years of it, and I just, I just want that part of my life gone. Not because of French, just because it was a bad period of life right there. <laughs> I love. Let's move on. Okay, because now it's time to go so gay that we had to bring Jeff. Gay! <laughs> How queer are we here? Well, Jeff is here to talk about Cruising. The movie. Why don't you take the take the lead on <laughs> the this song, one? The song. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Cruising by uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and Huey Lewis. <laughs> nope, wrong one. 
Uh, Cruising is from 1980. It stars Al Pacino as a cop in in, uh, New York City who, at the beginning of the movie, there are several uh, body parts that have washed up as part of a serial killer's M.O. in the uh, East River and in the Hudson. And Paul Sorvino wants to solve it. And he's going to he's going to make sure that Al Pacino makes detective if he can solve these crimes. Um, it's tall. It's by Will, William Friedkin who did the exorcist and the boys in the band. So he has a little bit of, you know, queer bona fides, but he, uh, he tells the story in a way that once Pacino goes undercover, he's on his own. He doesn't have any backups. There's, you know, he can't carry a weapon, nothing, because he has to appear like one of these guys. Most of the men who have been murdered look somewhat like him. And as a matter of fact, uh, the first victim that you that you see on screen played Pacino's double a couple times um, and was in Scarface and things like that. He uh, he goes. His character's name is Steve Burns, and he goes undercover and rents an apartment in. Greenwich Village, moves in next to uh, a really nice guy played by Don Scardino who's a pretty good director nowadays Um, and his character Ted, you know, befriends him, he just wants a friend, he's got a live-in lover who is on the road as a dancer, Uh, he tells him about all the murders that have been happening and Pacino's like, oh wow, you know I've never heard about this, this is crazy this is crazy (laughs) hooah! He doesn't actually say hua, yeah, but I would kill for him to say hua in the middle of cruising. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are various scenes of him in the underground S&M leather scene, filmed at actual S&M leather bars in New York City of the time. And this is 1980, right? It came out in 1980. It was filmed in 1979 and parts of 1980. Um, one of the reasons I love this movie is that I was told I wasn't supposed to, that it was a homophobic piece of shit, that it was, you know, it was bad for the gay community. And at the time, yeah, I can see that. Um, it was, you know, 1980, just before AIDS, and when the when gay people were just starting to become mainstream and, you know, gaining a little foothold in society, getting a little respect, and along comes cruising. Um, they used to flat, they would flash lights on the actors while they were filming. They would blow whistles and air horns while they were trying to talk whenever they were outside. Um, but in the last, in this few years, probably in the last 10 years, um, it has sort of gained a, a following amongst gay horror fans, especially because it's really, I mean, it's a police procedural movie but it's also kind of a horror movie because there is a killer right who you know he's stalking the gay community and he's in a in a in a kind of an interesting thing that now watching it kind of you can you think of the AIDS crisis in the first victim plays a killer plays the killer in a, in a later scene and the the first killer and it becomes a victim down in the ramble in central park and it's it plays with that you know and looking back now it could be seen as kind of a metaphor for aids you know that it's the passed on right um and then we you know later in the movie we kind of focus on one guy as the killer and it becomes more of a kind of a you know straight ahead 
police procedural thriller semi-horror movie at that point. Um, we're, you know, we're, we're meant to think towards the end that maybe Pacino is doing some of the killings. You know, is he, has he turned? Has his, um, has he infected his girlfriend played by Karen Allen pre-indie? Um, you know, it's, it's, I was told in no uncertain terms that it was a homophobic piece of shit. I watched The Celluloid Closet, which uh, it was the movie version of the book by Vito Russo, who was talking about how, you know, we've made so many strides in cinema as gay people, but here comes cruising and it's going to ruin it all. Uh, I think nowadays it's because we're past that and there's, you know, more gay people are everywhere and, you know, in every part of society. It's more as kind of it's more of just a horror movie and that's that's one of the reasons i love it because it was verboten (laughs) and now you know now i'm like oh yeah it's it's pride month time to watch cruising (laughs) 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 Uh, incidentally i did i did do a drawing of of I did a movie poster for Cruising that is now on the IMDb webpage. Nice. Somebody put it up there. So Very cool. That is very cool. So, what did you think, Sean? I wasn't a big fan. Um, it wasn't 824, so... <laughs> <laughs> I, I just didn't... I couldn't... What you were saying about the, the killer chain, I didn't pick up on that at all. I was just kind yeah. of confused as to what they were trying to go for. I thought I thought James Remar was going to come back and be the killer. I, I, did you ca- did you catch the snippets of uh, hardcore porn as the killer was striking? Um, I think I did. I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I, again, I was I was watching the movie, but it kind of it just wasn't holding my attention very well. Uh, I playing Farmville on his phone like watching <laughs> <laughs> I goddamn gays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, that's a weird standard to have. <laughs> you have to like cruise in her. <laughs> I was surprised to see that Ed O'Neill was in this. Oh, the, the, actually, know. this movie is one of his first movie roles. Oh my god! Um, and he's a member of the. There's a scene where Pacino has gone up to a hotel room that he's rented with uh, Jay Acavone, who you've I've, you've oh, seen him a hundred times. Gorgeous yeah, back yeah, he was really, really hot. Um, he was on soap operas and yeah. procedurals and you know TV guest spots, whatever. They go up to uh, Pacino's hotel room that he's rented at the St. James Hotel, and uh, the cops bust in. They're trying to catch this guy, yeah. and they think that this that Jay Acavone's character Skip is the killer. So they haul him, haul him and Pacino into the. Uh, precinct and slap him around a little bit and then out of the blue comes this six foot five black cowboy in a jock strap and nothing else and just comes up and punches and slaps both of them and then walks out of the room for no reason now the the real reason that this happened is because back then you know when before cops were all respectable members of society in new york and you know they they would do the kind of shit like that to throw you off, so that you if you came up, if you went and tried to report them for beating you up or trying to beat a confession out of you or whatever, well this guy came in and he was wearing a cowboy hat and a jock strap and he beat the shit out of me. They're not you know, who's going to believe that. <laughs> I think I had a so, friend that told that story once. Yeah, see that, again, I not not aware of that. I would just 
thought this is just fucking random. Yeah. Like, it just seemed like totally completely random I to me. I like that, though. It was right? just I mean, very odd and it, uh, off-putting. Well done. Um, and I think I've become so desensitized to, to much of, you know, subcultures and such that I really wasn't that thrown by by seeing, you know, men dancing, men kissing, men in leather, like... Not that I see that all the time, but just I would just, I'm just not. Come on, the Davenport Aldi is <laughs> lit. I'm just kind of desensitized to it, so it's, it didn't shock me, I guess. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, but that it was would have had you 42 years yeah. ago. Right. That was shocking. and I guess I just wasn't drawn in enough to put myself in that mindset. Yeah. Well, in the book that, that it's based on has nothing to do with the leather scene whatsoever. Hmm. It's just a gay serial killer. And, they, you know, uh, I prefer the ending of the book, but. Friedkin had, uh, he'd worked with a guy who, on The Exorcist, Paul Bateson, who was in the scene where uh, Reagan is in the hospital and she's getting all the tests, and he was a radiographer, I believe, and he was in that scene, you can see him, he's wearing a leather cuff on his hand, and he was in that scene with her because he was a medical professional. Well, several years later, he, um, he killed the theater cri- critic... <gasps> For, I want to say it's the Village Voice, and so Friedkin, having having, no, having known him, he went up and uh, he said he went to visit him in prison. He goes, you know what happened? He goes, well, you know, I beat him up for his money and whatever. And you know, what about all these other guys they see killed? Well, I don't remember it, but they said they'd give me a reduced sentence if you know if if I confess to all these other murders. And that's you know one wow. of the things that happens in cruising. And yeah. so that's like. So he talked to Paul Bateson and he was talking about how he was in the leather scene and all that. And that kind of became the germination for the leather part of this book adaptation. Hmm. So it's got, I, if you can watch it with commentary, it, there's a lot of insights like that, that I was like, Oh, that's kind of cool. I know. Kind of interesting. Um, but if you watch the, there's a, a Blu-ray out there that has two commentaries. One is by William Friedkin and one is by William Friedkin and somebody else who, again, name escaping me, <laughs> listen to that one because William Friedkin, when he does, uh, commentaries by himself, he just narrates the movie. Mm. That's why I can't watch the extra commentary. <laughs> Reagan is walking down the stairs now and she, you know, that's the kind of thing that he does. Uh, but there's a lot of insight in you know on the in the extras on the Blu-ray and you know having been a fan of this movie for the last 15 years right. since I saw it the first time, I it's always one of those movies I want to see what I want to gauge people's reaction mm-hmm. to, and it has it has layers, and sometimes you pick up on those, sometimes you don't. If you so. like within. Um Within your community, Jeff, <laughs> when you discuss the film Cruising, um, how do like do you have people who are like, oh God, you like that movie? Fuck you, or or like, oh no, I, I get it, I can see, you know, or is it just like, no, we just don't. Well, I mean, it. And your community. To be honest, I don't have most of the people that I talk to aren't of the community. But I thought you were going to say like I don't have a community. <laughs> I really don't. I'm a loser. Um, I have a, a tight little group of uh, uh, Twitter friends who talks about horror movies, and we started a uh, there's a, a little DM group that we have going on about started off as Scream, but we talk about other horror movies and whatever, and and it's it kind of I, I think I'm the oldest one there, so I have the most you know I, 
Seniority? Well, no, I have authority. What are we trying I to have say? the most experience with the movie Cruising. <laughs> oh, with the movie. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and then you know, my friend Justin, he, we talk about that kind of stuff all the time. But I think it's one of those things where Gen X gays, because they were told it was taboo and you shouldn't watch right. this movie. Yeah. I think we kind of have a special. Um, affinity for it. Yeah. You know, I know that there's a lot of people, like Pacino fans, were clamoring for it to be released on on Blu-ray. I had the Korean DVD for about 10 years until they did. until they released this one. <laughs> I got it on eBay for like $3, but it was $10 shipped. You know, that like a Criterion kind of edition? No, it's Arrow Films. Oh, okay. So, but there, so there are lots of interviews and things like that. Um, Pacino won't talk about the movie. Hmm. Because he hates William Friedkin, apparently, because oh. they did not get along on the set of this movie. Um, and that kind of comes through in some parts. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's a couple scenes, I don't want to spoil them, because I really want you to just go out and watch the movie, um, that really make you question the motives of, of Steve Burns, Pacino's character, um, but also Friedkin's direction. And I, I think that, you know, watch it for yourself. But a, a few of the people that I've talked to who've seen it who did not like it said that they thought it was, you know, it was like, oh, you can definitely tell it was told by a straight man. Oh. But to my knowledge, Gerald Walker, who wrote the book, yeah. was not. So there, you know, there was, there's the seeds of that. Right. So that, that that kind of gets into something that I had, had kind of an issue with, which is that it does to me feel like a very, other than the gay aspects of it, it feels like a police procedural in some ways. It's a there's a, an investigation of a murder of a serial killer going on, and it kind of felt very familiar in that way. Aside from all the leather and the and the buttholes. Yeah, <laughs> so many buttholes. So many buttholes. There's not. I, like I. Love you think there is? It's, <laughs> it's like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You don't see a lot, but there's a lot suggested. So you think all it's... the chaps were assless, all of them. But you don't get, actually get to see the bubble. There were no chocolate starfish in the movie. The closest, you know, the closest you get is to a guy who's greasing up his whole arm with Crisco. I think now is the perfect time for uh, a fun fact for an actor that was in Cruise. And not for you, Jeff, because you won't give a shit about this. But for Sean and I, who are fans of the show Boy Meets World, William Russ plays Paul Gaines yeah. in this movie. And I love William Russ, <laughs> and I did not know he was in this movie either. There's so, a lot of a lot of people. I look at this movie. Like, this list. It's you just know? insane. Well, I mean, like James Remar, I knew Richard Cox, I know, but Powers fucking Booth was in this yeah, movie. He has a really, really <laughs> tiny, tiny part. He's, it's one of his hanky. first, movies. but essential. Yes. Hanky. His name's Hanky. Well, because he, he's behind the Hankies. He sells the Hankies. He sells that you put the Hankies. Just tell him, uh, don't I'm, wear the yellow. Do not wear the yellow Hanky. <laughs> If you're, not, if you're not in the water sports, that's why you wear that fucking yellow hanky. That's like in the early 2000s when they were wearing colored bracelets with yeah. how far they'd gone. Yeah. Okay, I got you. I got yeah, you. if you want, if you really want to go down the rabbit I do, hole, I do. Or, or the butthole for this. For this. Well, yeah, yeah if you want to go up the butthole, you want to uh, Google the hanky code. That's an interesting old. Um, yeah, I think we talk. I think you and I should talk. Possibly, about yeah. That was that was. When gay people were less visible, that was one of the ways to let people know what you were into. Right. 
like a yellow hanky means that you're into water sports, as the guy says in the movie. Um, I wish we could use this now, like for everybody. Like people still do. People still do. So I mean, um, you know, I'm not gonna. I don't want to go too much into it right. because this is a family show, <laughs> which is why we're talking about buttholes. And boy meets world. Yeah. Oddly enough. So yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think it's appropriate. Um, but it, a lot of the stuff. It, in this movie is kind of dated because of visibility and things like that. Although I will probably end up having to go back to the hanky code sooner rather than later. It's, it's of its time, but it's like a lot of, you know, the, the movie, the seventies the were filled with these police procedurals right. and this was kind of a, just a twist on it really. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. they, you know what they did? Because I, I remember there was at least two to three episodes of Law and Order or Special Victims Unit that did this very kind yeah. of thing. Probably taken from cruising, I would assume, because it's just it's so. Do you that area? I know that Sean, you hated the movie Ten to Midnight. Oh yeah, garbage, absolute um, trash. I love it because it's trash. <laughs> um, and Gene Davis was in that movie. He played the killer in that movie. Did you recognize him in Cruising? No, I missed him. He played the uh, blonde trans, yeah, trans uh, prostitute sex worker who uh, looks just like Barbara Hershey in a blonde wig. I gotta see You can't unsee Barbara Hershey when you look at him now. I guarantee it. Um, but he was he. He was in there, uh, mm-hmm. Joe Spinell from Maniac, and, you know, myriad other, the Godfather movies and things yeah. like that. Um, he I played, don't know the name of the guy, but there's a guy who, uh, he was he was, the bad, he was one of the bad guys in Dumb and Dumber. Uh, he was trying to track down Lloyd and him, and he's in the, he's in the van with him when they're riding to I, Colorado. Oh, yeah, And they're yeah, doing yeah. that screaming thing. Yeah. Yeah, that guy's in this movie. He plays one of the cops. Oh. He plays his partner. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, you know, that are in this movie went on to work for, that are still working. Yeah. And somehow Brian James isn't in this movie. How <laughs> is that possible? Don't know. Couldn't tell you. <laughs> Deep cut 80s reference for everybody. <laughs> one of the cops in the movie is actually a real cop who was one of the ones who, um, he was a detective on the body parts in the Hudson Ugh. case. That they used as a framing device for this. Ooh. It's it's just to me it's and again just how far we've come as well. Let's just say for now how far we've come with things. I'm looking at like this cast list and it's like white man, white man, white man, Karen <laughs> Allen, white man, white man, white man, and they almost all have mustaches and almost all look like they were from the 1980s. This is a very very white centric movie. Yeah, you um, tell. and I. That's William Friedkin. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think he, you know, he, he get, he's in his little bubble. But you've got, what, uh, Roy Vitt that's in it? And like, that's, wasn't he the, he was the cowboy, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, that's the only black man, that's the only person of color in this film. Just to, just to touch on that, I just think that's fascinating because, again, like, when I was a little kid, I remember thinking, when I thought of gay men, I thought of, like, white femme like I thought of like the friends that I have now really the, like the really like, you know yeah. what I'm talking no, about no no yeah yeah but yeah. that's and that's sad to me because there's a whole there's such a spectrum well it's that's the media you you know right you up until even now you're getting stories that are purely white purely white um you know now they've just re, redone Queer as Folk 
and the original one was I mean I know Canada you know (laughs) I know (laughs) but it was like it says like no one else was queer no one else was queer (laughs) yeah Yeah. yep so So. yeah the the (laughs) the street washing of gay people (laughs) The only gay people you can see on TV or in movies are in loving relationships, committed relationships, and they're both kind of good looking. Yeah. 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 Or they're a gay clown like Jack from (laughs) Willing Place. Just Jack. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, cruising is of its, like I said, it's of its time. It's uh, William Friedkin, so it is very white. Um, But having lived in New York and, you know, been in like gay bars there and things like that, it's that, that you can tell this was before AIDS. Hmm. Yeah. Um, because of the fact that, you know, now I, most of the people that, most of the gay people that were in that movie are probably dead. Um, and that was like, it was, it's like a snapshot of, of 1979, I can appreciate 1980, that. Right. you know, that you don't see anymore. And it's, in a way, it's sad that it has to be, you know, they have to be being murdered, but in, in as, somebody, as somebody who loves fucking horror movies, <laughs> I mean, yes. come on. More body parts, please. You know. I'll, I'll take five. Having, having been in the ramble after one <laughs> o'clock with a bunch of my friends and realizing that that's where the killer is. <laughs> and ha- I had, I, I saw this movie before I ever went to the ramble with my ex and we're jokingly walking up and going, who's here? I'm here. <laughs> and nobody got it except us. <laughs> we thought it was the funniest thing in the world, but... <laughs> you had to have a pe- you had to have those shades on to make it yeah. work. Yeah, yeah. Who are shades in Central Park <laughs> at night? Come on. So that must be Larry Atlas. Or <laughs> Eric Rossman in the film. This guy's got shades on. <laughs> I'm so I'm so glad that I can be part of this podcast and not know a goddamn thing that I'm talking about, and also hand out knowledge that no one really needs. But mm. here I am. I promise the next one I'm on, I, I will actually watch something. The, I, I found this movie just to be just not very distinguished as a movie. I didn't find it to be very. I think what you mentioned about Pacino and Friedkin, I, that that clicked in my head because I don't think this is Pacino's best performance at all. No. I think this is he. He almost feels kind of pushed around by the plot. He doesn't feel com- he doesn't seem comfortable anywhere where he is. Well, and I just and I, I know that's part of the character. I because yeah. I know that I understand this part of the character, but it just didn't. He didn't feel like he wanted to be in this movie. He and but the, what's funny is he really he pushed for this part mm-hmm. the character is 29 years old yeah it's supposed to be played by richard Gere originally which you know you can see that but i also it wouldn't have been the same movie at all right but pacino really wanted it and he was 40 at the time playing a 29 year old i did not yeah really so he would you know it was like oh okay you're <laughs> it's like 90210 <laughs> um Wait, so if, if if Gear had played the role, would they have then just gotten rid of the look of the guy entirely and just made him look like Richard Gear? Don't know. I don't. You know. I mean, that's because that seems like to, obviously they pick Pacino's or they they pick Burns because he looks like the guy that the killer is yeah. killing. So it probably would have been you know a little uh, more feminine looking because mm-hmm. I mean Richard Gear in 1980 was not. No. You know, I mean, he's, he's still very pretty. He's pretty. Yeah. He's not. You yeah. know, he doesn't have any roughness or you know, a lot of character right. to his face. Right. 
he's kind of a he's I don't I don't mean this is a bad thing, but he's kind of bland looking. It's kind of a cipher, so you can kind of put yourself on him. Yeah. Whereas Pacino is Pacino, and by then, you know, he was very well known for The Godfather, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Was this, this was pre or post Scarface, right? Pre, no, pre. Yeah, that was '83, I believe. Oh, right. Um, this was after, you know, this was, uh, you know, late '70s. So he'd done yeah. Dog Day Afternoon, and you know. See, I do know that, but I did. I have watched some films. You'd think Dog Day Afternoon would pre- would have prepared Pacino fans to not be upset. Yeah. <laughs> See, I don't think that the fans were necessarily upset. Yeah. It was the gay community because they didn't want a negative portrayal mm-hmm. of yeah. the community, and they you know they'd read the book, I'm sure, and knew what was coming up, and had heard from some of the leather queens that they were going to be in this movie at you know at the Ramrod or the Mine Shaft, and um. I'm actually listening to a book right now called How to Survive a Plague, which there's a documentary about. Um, and they talk about Larry Kramer, who was a famous gay activist, who, uh, when they were shutting the bathhouses down during the AIDS crisis, he said, and tying into this movie, you see the mine shaft a couple times in this movie, and he said, you know, the bathhouses are, if you're going to shut those down, you might as well shut down the mine shaft, too, because it's more unsanitary than the bathhouses. <laughs> And I think the mine shaft is where the guy is greasing up his whole arm with Crisco. Uh-huh. So, yeah. My asshole hurts just thinking about it. I, you know... To, par- to paraphrase Madonna. <laughs> I, I think that... It, I need to add just one more fun fact. Because that's all I've got for this podcast. <laughs> Al Pacino plays Steve Burns in this film. Steve Burns is also the name of the man... Blue's Clues. Clues. ...who played Steve from Blue's Clues, yes. Also released an amazing album back in the early 2000s. But, uh, yeah, Steve Burns. So when you look at Al Pacino, you're going to think of Blue's Clues from now on. A gay Blue's Clues, which actually should happen anyway. Gayer Blue's Clues. A gayer Blue's Clues should happen. More bondage. Stay away from blue. <laughs> Stay away from blue. How can we corrupt you as well? We'll find a way. God bless. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm going to go back and watch it because, again, I got like ten minutes into it and I just I, I couldn't deal right away. So I need to go back and just sit through it and enjoy it because I love Karen that one too. Well, she's not in this movie a whole lot, so well, enjoy. I'll just, I'll just skip over. <laughs> just keep finding Karen Allen throughout the movie, like as much as I could find her. There is a scene at the end where he's brought, he has tried to keep his lives separate. Yeah. You know, he's a straight man, but he's living in a gay world, and you, you got to wonder towards the end of it if he, if yeah. he's, you know, is he kind of, and he brings his leather home, and she tries it on, and it's like. Oh, the worlds collide, and then he looks at the camera, and you're like, "Huh." Uh-huh. So you got, you know, um, there's a character death in there that you're like, "Oh, is this is this him dealing with his repressed homosexuality?" <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. "Hmm." <laughs> so All right. I got that. It felt more like, like that's the first part that really felt like a horror movie to me. <laughs> like, really, like it switched genres for me in that moment. <laughs> Nice, <laughs> but it's like a, it's a you know to me it's I, I think of it as a slasher movie. Yeah, you know, late seventies, early eighties, um, you know, knifings in the park and at CD you hotels. Told me not to be scared of it, but like the way you're describing it, I don't really want to watch it. 
because it's like if it's like a slasher movie, I don't like slasher movies. Amy, are you a gay man in 1980? I could have. Who looks kind of like Pacino? Yeah. Like I, we all know I do, but <laughs> I mean like. Hua. <laughs> Amy, come is, on. Is that a, is that a whole can of Crisco? Hua. <laughs> Do you like my yellow hanky? Hua. <laughs> I want this to stop. <laughs> I need this to stop. <laughs> You've ruined water sports forever. <laughs> She's never going to ski again. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God. I Are you into water sports? <laughs> no, I like to watch. Now take that fucking yellow hanky out of your pocket. That's one of the best lines. In the movie. This guy, and he's been in stuff. You know, this guy has been in stuff, and you're like, you got your start yelling at Pacino about a yellow hanky and water sports, girl. <laughs> God bless. Hey, that's the end of our list. Yeah, that was it the is. last one. And you know, and again, thank you for letting me just sit here mm. and not have any information whatsoever. Well done. You thank did you. great at that. You're like thank producer you. Amy. Yeah, I, I feel really <laughs> bad about this. But I also feel really good because I drank a lot of wine throughout this time. So it's fine. <laughs>